I have been rebuked severely. I've been told that I'm not supposed to brag on the crowds again. Um, whenever I brag on the crowds on Sunday morning, there's not that many on Sunday night. Whenever I brag on the contribution, it goes down the next week. So uh, let the preacher know what uh, kind of uh, influence that he has. No, seriously, we had a lot of visitors this morning. Hopefully we've made an impact on many of them, letting them know that they're loved and appreciated. I did notice several of you this morning doing your Christian duty and participating by welcoming people. And I hope you continue to do that. Lord willing, next Sunday morning with a gospel meeting, we're going to have a great attendance. Uh, If you'll be here, you'll bring somebody with you, we'll have a great uh, gathering to be able to hear some really good gospel preaching. The first Sunday night of the month is when we take some time to study God's Word together and answer or attempt to answer some questions And these questions many times require investigation to provide a good, proper, reasonable answer. Uh, Doctrinal questions, though, sometimes have some very valuable practical applications. And the first question that we're going to address tonight, I believe, is one that is asking a question about information, but I believe if you read it more deeply, you realize that there's a a great practical application in it. And the best way for us to grow is to ask questions. And when you read Acts 25 and you listen to Agrippa and Festus, primarily as Festus said, I didn't really know how to deal with this, and so I want to ask questions and so that I might be able to better understand. Okay, question number one. From Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Who were the sons of God and the daughters of men? And who were the race that was born to them? Now, let's begin by reading Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for indeed he is flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Now there are two questions that have been submitted relating to this passage. And so we're going to try first of all to identify the sons of God and the daughters of men. Now, as you begin to contemplate that and you start saying, well, this one will say, I think it was this or I think it was that. So for a minute or two, let's explore some of those ideas. The first one is that the sons of God are angels. Now, uh, what they mean by that is, is that when you go to certain passages of Scripture, 
that there are people who are referred to as the sons of God that are clearly angels, particularly in the book of Job. So we're going to look at Job chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 38, verse 7. And Job will record, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan also came among them. As you're reading Job's account, you realize that this is a heavenly picture. The sons of God here has reference to the angelic host. Chapter 2, verse 1, and again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. When you get to chapter 38, and he's asking Job the question, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the the world began, and he says, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He's talking about the angelic host. And so here we have three times in the book of Job where the sons of God refers to the angelic host. And so for those who are holding this view, they're suggesting that the sons of God are the angels and the daughters of men are humans and that the angels somehow came and cohabited with the sons of men or the daughters of men and had a race of people that were, we would say, crossbreeds between angels and men. There's a big problem with that. If you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 20, and the Pharisees have come before Jesus, and they've asked him a question about a man who died and left a widow, and she married his brother. He died and left another widow, or her as a widow again, and The question is, in the resurrection, who shall you be? And then Jesus answered them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection of the dead neither marry or given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, but for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. What that tells you is, is that in the angelic host, there is not procreation. Among the angelic host, they are not of a physical nature. They don't marry, they don't bear children. Matthew's account would also bear this parallel out. So others will suggest, well, maybe there are the aristocratic people, the dynastic rulers. For instance, when you read Psalms chapter 82, there's some terminology that is used there that is sort of eye-catching. David said, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. The mighty and the gods has reference to human rulers. Verses 6 and 7, I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and shall fall like one of the princes. What he's describing here are people of high stature. But people of high stature live and die just like people who are of lower stature as well. 
those who hold this view seem to think that it reflects the way the words are used in extra-biblical accounts, uh, like some of the writings that are ancient use the term sons of God to refer to the aristocratic people. A third possibility are these would be from the godly line of Seth. If you'll remember, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and Cain slew Abel, and after that, Adam and Eve had another son, and they called him Seth, and those who were of the descendants of Seth were godly people, and those who were the descendants of Cain often became ungodly people. Now, lest you think that I am overemphasizing this, I encourage you to read Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5. And you read about the descendants of Cain and you read about the descendants of Seth. Perhaps the best way to do this is just contrast two of the men. Let's contrast Lamech and Enoch. Lamech was a descendant of Cain. Enoch was a descendant of Seth. If you read in chapter 4 verses 19 through 24 about Lamech, you find out he's a very brutish man. Uh, he's got a very strong attitude of himself. He says he took two wives. The name of one was Ada. The name of the second was Zillah. And then he goes on to explain, explain who bore who. But I want you to notice verse 23. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Listen to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. What he's saying is, you better not mess with me, women. If I was hurt or I was injured by someone else, I took their life. Women, you better not mess with me. That's the kind of attitude that Lamech had. In contrast that, though, if you go to chapter 5 and verse 24, it said, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch represented good folks. So as you get to chapter 6, here's what you observe. Chapters 4, chapters 5 talk about the godly line of Seth versus the wicked line of Cain. And so you have before you uh, a description Now, their children. The children here are described as being among the giants, or the Hebrew word Nephilim. And they're also described as the mighty men of renown, which is Gibberim. Now, those terms are used in other places. In fact, if you read Numbers chapter 13, and you're reading about the spies who had spied out the land of Uh, Israel, the promised land. They came back and they reported what they saw and it says, there we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight and so we were in their sight. There are some people that are so tall and so large that you dwarf in their sight to the point where you look yourself like a grasshopper and they look at you the same way. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 11, we read, There were also giants in the land like Anakim, but the Moabites called them Emmon. Chapter 2, verse 20, they also, that also regarded the land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Amorites called them Zamzumimim. So you recognize there's, there's people who are giants. How tall were they? Well, Og, king of Bashan, was described as being one of the last of them. And it's described the size of his bed, and it says nine cubits is its length, four cubits its width, according to the standard cubit. If a cubit is 18 inches and you got one nine, that's 13 and a half feet long. That's a pretty good sized fellow, isn't it, Zali? Yeah, I mean, he's. You'd have to look up to him. Six feet wide, he's a pretty good sized fellow that way, too. You recognize that these people were giants. Now, if I'm reading carefully in Genesis chapter 6, some of these people were the descendants of those who had been born to them. Note carefully that there were giants there before and Moses is afterward as well. Now you have to step back and say, okay, I've read that account and I, I see the possibilities. What's the purpose of the account? Why did the Holy Spirit through Moses put that record there for all of us to read? Well, obviously, if you look at it in its context, it's to show us how the world became corrupt. How does it get to the point where God looks at Adam and Eve after he's created them and he says, Behold, it is very good. How does it get to the point from Adam to the time of Noah that the world has become so wicked even when you have a good family line like Seth? That's the question. Well, let's make some applications from that. If you read carefully, it said that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. Or if you're reading the King James, fair. Beauty can even affect godly people in making poor decisions. Here's a young man, maybe he's, he's gone to church all of his life and, and he's out here and he's trying to find a woman that he thinks will make him a good wife. You know one of the things that attracts a lot of young people is beauty. You know, she's beautiful. And because of that, I want her. Let me give you a good illustration. When you're reading the book of Judges and you come across a man by the name of Samson and you read about Samson in chapter 14 of Judges, Samson went down to Timnah. He saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. His father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among your people that you must go get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And listen to Samson. He said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. I have no doubt that when you look at this woman along with Delilah that they were temptresses. 
beautiful women lacking in godly character. When you have David walking on the roof of the king's palace, in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 2, said, David arose from his bed, walked on his roof of his house. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Sometimes beauty can cause even godly people to make poor decisions. Here you have the line of Seth, the sons of God, who saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and what did they do? They took wives of all whom they chose. Boy, is there a practical lesson in that for us today? Marriage must be based on more than physical beauty. Because here's a a reality of fact, whether you young people realize this or not, take a good look at your mother and daddy. That's what you're going to look like. Take a good look at grandma and grandpa. You're going to look like them too. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. You want to find a truly beautiful woman, find the one whose inside is even more beautiful than her outside. Proverbs 6.25 says, Do not lust after her beauty in your heart nor let her allure you with her eyelids. A second, what I believe is good application observation is, strength and size physically does not correlate to the same spiritually. You know, you may have a man like Samson. In fact, you take in contrast Samson and Zacchaeus. Here's Samson, a man strong in physical might, But here's a man weak. He loses his temper all the time. Here's a man who is constantly being attracted by women, particularly the wrong women. Here's a man who has a weakness, even though he's physically strong. And then you go to Luke chapter 19 and you read about a little small man who's trying to see Jesus come by and everybody's taller than he is and the only way he can see Jesus is to climb up into a sycamore tree and what does Jesus do? He takes notice of Zacchaeus and his interest. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 10, Paul said, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You recognize that being strong sometimes, like these descendants were, did not make them strong spiritually. Now here's the the bottom line of all this. Sadly, more often, wicked influence the godly rather than the godly influencing the wicked. I remember when I was a teenager, I went to a youth rally, and there was a brother there who was speaking, and he called up one of us young men who were, let's just say, a little stouter than he was, and 
He said, now what I'm going to try to do, he stood up on the front pew, he says, I'm going to try to pull you up here with me. And he said, you try to pull me down where you are. Reached up, grabbed a hold of his hand, just yanked him down to the floor like the rest of us. He says, it's a lot easier to pull somebody down than it is to pull somebody up. And you think about that. Here's the sons of God and here's the daughters of men. And then God said, my spirit shall not strive with man always, forever. 120 years. That's all it's going to take for the daughters of men to have the sons of God wrapped around their little finger. Question number two. What is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? There is no substantial difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And if you will look carefully, you will find the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, in Matthew's account. And you will find the phrase, the kingdom of God, in Mark, Luke, and to some extent, John's account. Mark chapter, or Matthew 4 verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark's parallel account saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Mark 1 and verse 15. Do you see the two parallels there? Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Mark calls it the kingdom of God. Well, here's the explanation for that. Matthew is writing for a Jewish audience. The Jewish people do not pronounce, and in fact, they don't even like to write the name of God. They have such respect for the name of God and would that the world today had that kind of respect. That they would often use a euphemism something to recognize that's referring to heaven or to God. And so they would call the kingdom of heaven where God is at. But it's essential to see that the kingdom was a subject of prophecy and established in the days of those people. In Luke chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus said, I truly, there are some standing here shall not taste of death, though they shall see the kingdom of God. Many premillennialists are looking forward to the kingdom of God coming at the end of the world. But Jesus said, some of you are not going to die first. Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, I say unto you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus is going to build his church and he's going to give key, Peter the keys of it along with the rest of the apostles that whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus said in John eighteen thirty six, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of which we speak was prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled as Jesus built it here in the New Testament. Now question number three. Why do I get all of the good questions? Why did the people before the flood live so much longer than after? 
Here's the answer. I don't know. (laughs) Any answer given is going to be pure speculation. You see, I have some alternatives that I can present to you. But when you finish, I still don't know. Let me suggest to you some of the possibilities for it, and then you may have some others. Number one is the possibility of the differences in the length of the calendar. Some of the ancient records, particularly the Sumerian kings list, speak of some of the kings reigning for 28,000 years, other 36,000 years. I try to do a little calculation. If they let a year be equivalent to a day, that's about 70 years. Okay, that, that makes sense. We just don't know how they considered their calendars. Is it possible that in the Sumerian kings that they overinflated? I have no doubt that they might have done that as well. But we do know that some calendars were not necessarily 365 days. They were much shorter than that. Another possibility is climate conditions. Prior to the flood, it appears that the world had a canopy of water around it. I want you to imagine the world as a ball. And now we have around our earth a layer of atmosphere. And in fact, some of you may have heard that the Chinese space station is actually coming back to earth. And one reason why they don't know where it's going to land is as it comes down, it hits that atmosphere and is bouncing until it finally enters the atmosphere and then it will come and crash somewhere or burn up as it re-enters. But it appears that before the flood that there was a canopy or an enclosure, if you will, of water. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before the herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth. When you go to chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 7, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. God had told Noah, this is what's going to happen. It had not happened before. Now, it's possible it may have rained from subsequent to Genesis chapter 2, but it's also very possible that it had not rained. But the passage that really does help is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. And the question had come up, where was the promise of the coming of Jesus? And Peter says, for this they willfully forget that the word of God, the heavens that were of old, the heavens that's above us, the earth standing out of water and in the water. Did you hear that? Standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. I don't know how God accomplished it. Was it like sticking a pin in the water that was above the earth and all of a sudden the water fell? I don't know how God accomplished it. But if there was a canopy of water, then this world would have been much like a hothouse. And the uh, various rays from the sun would not have penetrated and would not have aged 
people like it does today. And that also would explain why, for instance, at the polar caps you have various animals flash frozen in water. And uh, would explain why that the earth would have been in that kind of condition. Another possibility is the lack of disease. There may not have been the diseases there to age the body as it does today. One thing that some people don't even seem to consider is the fact that God may have miraculously preserved the ages of people to populate the earth. You know, you've got Adam, you've got Eve, and then pretty soon you've got their descendants, and you've got those marrying. And in order to populate the earth, God may have allowed the people to live much, much longer. But it's obvious after the flood, man's lifespan begins to drop significantly to a point where it comes down and then it levels off. And you go to Psalms 90 and verse 10 and David writes, the days of our lives are 70 years and if by reason of strength 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow for it is soon cut off and we fly away. So how long should man expect to live today? Not 969 years as Methuselah. But man should expect somewhere around the 70 to 80 year span. Maybe a little longer, maybe a little shorter. Now there are questions of personal interest and there's questions of eternal significance. If you get wrong who the sons of God and the daughters of men are in Genesis 6, I'm not sure that that's something that's going to affect you eternally. I I hate for you to miss the lesson there. When you start thinking about the age spans that men lived, that's interesting, especially for our children to answer in vacation Bible school and pew packers. But there are some things that are very important. Some things God may not have revealed to us. And that's okay. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God has provided what he wants us to know. And yes, we may investigate, we may listen, we may learn. But the bottom line is there's some things that God really wants us to know. And I'd suggest to you that the most important question that you and I will ever ask is what must I do to be saved? Because that's not only going to affect us here, but it's going to affect us eternally. In Acts 16 and verse 30, is that jailer brought Paul and Silas out? He asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That very hour he took him and they washed his stripes and he was baptized. And every time you keep reading about these people and their investigation, it involves faith in God, repentance from sins, confession of that faith and being baptized. That's the important question. And we never should lose sight of that one. Tonight, if you want to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we ask the question, why not tonight? What would be a better time to do it?
When would be a better time? There's no other time promised to us. If you're a child of God and you need to come back home, what are you waiting for? Why not tonight? Why not as together we stand and sing?